Hello and welcome to the Science and Belief in Society podcast, brought to you by the International Research Network for the Study of Science and Belief in Society. Understanding public attitudes towards science has become an increasingly important area of research in recent decades, and the importance of this kind of work has only been heightened by the emergence of COVID-19 and the diverse and unpredictable public responses to scientific and medical advice during the pandemic. Today's guest, Dr. Bastian Rutgens, investigates public attitudes to science around the world with a focus on what he describes as science scepticism. In today's episode, Bastian explains how tools and methods from social psychology can help us to understand the motivations which underlie scepticism of science, and we discuss the wider social and political implications of these kinds of attitudes. I'm Dr. Will Mason-Wilkes, and today I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host, Dr. Richard Grove. How are you doing, Richard? I'm doing pretty good, and I think this is the first time you and I have done a podcast together. Is that it right? is indeed, yeah. It's the first time I've recorded one for a while, so I might be a bit rusty, but hopefully I remember how to talk and uh, ask questions and things. But yeah, I'm very excited to, uh, to be recording with you, Richard, um, for the first time. Uh, and yes, today um, we are very pleased uh, to be joined by Dr. Bastian Rutgens, uh, and Bastian is Assistant Professor of Psychology at the University of Amsterdam. So, so welcome, Bastian. Thanks very much for, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to uh, our conversation. So, uh, Bastian, uh, normally we, we start off by asking people sort of generally, um, where are you? Um, what are you up to lately? And how did you get started in, in sort of the line of research that you've been doing? Right. So I'm, um, so I'm currently at the University of Amsterdam. Um, I studied a long, long time ago, I studied psychology of culture and religion at uh, Radboud University Nijmegen, uh, after which I uh, studied social psychology and got my PhD in social psychology as well. Um, initially, I was mostly interested in sort of the motivational underpinnings of religious belief, but also beliefs in uh, more secular beliefs, like belief in science, belief in, in progress, things like that. And uh, my PhD research basically was on that topic. So I looked at how uh, the need for control, the need for certainty, predictability, meaning would impact on and shape uh, religious beliefs, but also more secular beliefs, as well as beliefs in science. Um, after doing that for a couple of years, I became more and more interested in basically science denial, people that are skeptical, even outright uh, denying of all types of, of science, particularly contentious science domains like climate change or evolution. And uh, I just wanted to sort of delve into that and, 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 and try to sort of systematically assess the most important, if you will, uh, uh, antecedents of such uh, science skepticism. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Bastian. Um, so you now kind of describe your main research interest as the psychology of science. So regular listeners to the podcast will have heard us discuss the sociology of science previously. So could you then maybe tell us a bit about the psychology of science as a discipline? So it's kind of, or a sub-discipline, it's sort of main research questions or aims and kind of what motivates it. Yeah, so I think the, the main difference probably is the fact that a sociology of science focuses more on sort of the macro level uh, 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 yeah, beliefs in science that people have public trust in science. Our public trust might change <clears throat> over the over the course of uh, of of, uh, of time, whereas the psychology of science focuses more on intra-individual 
processes that help shape to some extent, uh, you know, uh, why people trust science, why they might be uh, reluctant to trust uh, science, as well as the stereotypes that they might have about, about scientists. So it's, it's, it's taking more this intra-individual uh, approach um, where we quite similarly to, to research on other worldviews, uh, belief systems, ideologies even, uh, look at uh, cognitive uh, processes that, 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 that play, a, play a role here, as well as motivational processes, but also, of course, more social processes like, you know, shared social norms, uh, uh, that, that kind of thing. So, so I think uh, there's a lot of overlap in the types of research questions that we aim to answer. But I think we take a, a slightly different approach by focusing more on the individual, of course, situated in, in a social context, because that's what social psychologists uh, like to do. So you spoke a little bit about how you're interested in uh, ideologies and, and how um, you, you're trying to identify uh, ideological antecedents of science skepticism. Um, and you recently published uh, a paper titled Science Skepticism Across 24 Countries in the Journal of Social, Psychological, and, and Personality Science. Uh, and that's been building on a lot of your work that's been interrogating this idea of science skepticism uh, that you talked about a little bit ago. Um, so if you could sort of give a, a sort of a definition of, of what you mean when you say science skepticism, um, and some of these types of ideologies, when you talk about ideological antecedents, uh, what are some of these types of ideologies that do influence science skepticism? Um, and what are some of the major major findings uh, from, from the paper that you that you recently published? Right, yeah. So so I think it's really important when we when we think about science skepticism and how to define that to make a distinction between what one might call healthy skepticism versus unhealthy skepticism, right? So 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 of course every scientist would uh, need a healthy dose of skepticism, you know, towards uh, all types of data, but definitely also towards uh, science. Uh, but what we uh, talk about when we talk about science skepticism is the more unhealthy uh, uh, science skepticism, which you could define maybe as the uh, sort of unwarranted rejection of science, uh, regardless of the quantity and quality of evidence that is presented to the individual, right? So, so uh, uh, it's not so much a question of, oh, I'm not convinced yet. I'd like to see a little bit more evidence. It's more like, don't show me any more evidence. I made up my mind. I'm not going to uh, uh, accept this, this 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 knowledge or this evidence. Uh, so that's the sort of science rejection or science skepticism that we talk about. And um, this has been the main outcome variable in, in this research indeed. And we looked at the science skepticism across the most yeah widely studied contentious domains of science. So that's climate science, vaccination, uh, genetic modification of organisms, genetically modified foods, um, evolution, biological evolution. And recently we've added to that list things like gene editing in humans, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology. So the list is sort of growing, but in that, in that uh, cross-cultural paper, we looked at the uh, initial four domains that I, that I mentioned. And I think the main takeaway from that paper is that um, basically the, the, the heterogeneity of science skepticism. So it really depends on the domain, uh, who will be more skeptical. 
Uh, and this ties into these ideological antecedents that you mentioned. So if you look at climate science, and there's a lot of research on this uh, that, that backs up this, this claim, it's, it's not only our research, there's, there's, there's a whole body of that, showing that you know, if you look at things like political ideology, but also religious belief, spiritual beliefs, conspiracy beliefs, all types of worldviews, belief systems, and you, uh, you know, control for all of these in, in, for example, multiple regression analyses, what you're seeing is that time and time again, political ideology, conservatism, is the predictor that pops up, uh, sort of pops out as the, uh, the most sort of robust predictor of climate, uh, climate skepticism. And so things like religion or spirituality or other types of beliefs or science knowledge don't really do much on top of that. So that's for climate science. Then for uh, uh, GMOs, you see a quite a different picture where it's not so much about ideology or uh, religious belief, but it's more about science knowledge. So here you see that if you ask people to, for example, fill out a science test, a science literacy test, or, or some test of science understanding, uh, you see that that's what's really the best predictor uh, across countries of, of skepticism about GMOs. So here's, it just seems to be this information deficit uh, that, plays, uh, that plays the most uh, important role. Um, for evolution, not surprisingly, perhaps, it's, it's really religious belief, particularly religious orthodoxy. You know, all the constant, all the other variables that I just mentioned, it's really religious orthodoxy that, that's the most consistent predictor of uh, uh, disbelief in biological evolution. Not surprising, I, I, I would say. And then finally, for vac vaccination, vaccine skepticism, the picture is a little bit more complex, but what we're seeing is that uh, uh, it's a bit of a mix between, on the one hand, uh, some effects of science literacy. So there is some effect of lack of knowledge uh, being predictive of, of vaccine skepticism, but also uh, spiritual belief. So self-identifying as a spiritual believer, not so much traditional religious belief, but a spiritual belief uh, was found to be the most, yeah, it's a small effect, but the most consistent effect that we found across all these, uh, all these countries. And maybe to add to that, we also looked at general trust in science, so uh, domain general. And there we see, again, that spirituality really was the most consistent uh, predictor of that uh, general trust in science. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, thank you for that lesson. There's a, a load of really interesting questions that have, that have just jumped to mind. But just, just to clarify on that kind of last point, so so do those, those patterns of kind of um, ideological antecedent predicting particular kind of response, do they hold across countries? Or is that the kind of fun? Yeah, so, or, or are there kind of interesting differences between countries as well? So, or, or, or is there a general picture there? Yeah, that's a great question. I think generally it holds up pretty well across countries, especially the, the more, the, the, the stronger effects really like, like the link between religious orthodoxy and evolution, we found it in, I think 21 out of the 24 countries. So that's, that's quite uh, convincing. Um, spirituality and uh, uh, general faith in science, you know, general trust in science, that link we found in most countries as well, but the effect was a little stronger in uh, what we call weird countries. So the Western educated industrialized rich Democrat uh, countries, you know, it's so sort of the secularized Western countries, their, their effect was a little bit stronger, but we also found it in the, in the other uh, non-weird, if you will, uh, countries. Um, for vaccine skepticism, we saw some interesting uh, 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 cross-level interactions where spirituality was a stronger predictor of vaccine skepticism, again, in weird countries, whereas more traditional religious belief 
was a somewhat better predictor of vaccine skepticism in uh, non-weird countries. So a little bit of that sort of interesting uh, interactions between country level and individual level variables. But I would say generally across the board, most of the effects that we found were pretty similar across countries. But, but those, uh, so those issues you were kind of talking about, so climate skepticism, vaccine hesitancy, um, evolution, and things. So there, I mean, I don't know, were there, so they're all quite kind of, you know, in, in, in kind of how you're operation, operationalizing this, they're all quite kind of controversial or issues which have kind of a history or, or kind of established kind of body of literature around them, that they are controversial in some way or, or people are, are, approach these topics skeptically. And then that's the kind of thing you measure. Are there, is there, or was there a kind of issues that weren't so controversial that you kind of also tested in this? Way? I don't know if this is a kind of, you know, why didn't you do this other study kind of question, but like, is it, was, is there a comparator there with like, sort of do, do some of these ideological antecedents kind of or, or have have you looked at that how they might map onto less controversial or less traditionally skeptical or or, or topics that people have less skepticism towards is there some or, or, or am i just asking why didn't you do a different study here so. uh, no i think uh, i think that's a, that's a, that's a really good point and we have been um, extending the list a little bit with things. I mean, mostly we 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 try to we we inter yeah we focus more on contentious topics uh, because I think that's where the I mean that's also the stuff that's discussed most. I think uh, in 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 uh, you know uh, in the media, right? So if we if we as as a general public uh, if we read about science, it is oftentimes about things like climate uh, climate change and vaccination. Uh, we do now add things like artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, which which could argue might be a little less contentious. Although there is, there is for example, a really interesting research line by Chris Toomey uh, um, um, on nanotechnology and, and religious, um, um, yeah, religious people having issues with uh, with uh, nanotechnology, right? So so again, this it's kind of, kind of contentious as well. Um, However, I think more importantly is it is to I think it's important to point out that if you look at the mean levels of science skepticism across these domains, they're quite low. Um, so they, they they are indeed the sort of the, the the contentious, widely debated topics. But if you look at uh, mean levels of skepticism, they're they're usually on the low end of the scale. So if you if you look like on on on, on for example. Suppose that you measure climate science skepticism on a seven-point scale, we would get at a mean of two point five, maybe. You know, and the, and this holds true for uh, you know there's there's country-level variation. Some countries uh, more skepticism than other countries, but across the board, uh, these these levels are quite low. Um, they're a bit higher, for example, for GMOs. So that that's that's surprising. That's the topic that really sort of stands out, where where skepticism is quite is definitely the most contentious topic. Uh, with uh, some European countries really standing out as, as very skeptical, on average, on on the, on the, on the, in their beliefs about and their attitudes towards uh, GMOs. Uh, so so basically, to 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 summarize my somewhat winding answer here, um, we do take the more contentious topics, but levels aggregate levels of skepticism are quite low, maybe maybe lower than you would expect based on the topics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's really fascinating, isn't it? It turns, you know, speaks to that kind of, you know, the you know the kind of general potentially hegemonic kind of role that science plays in a lot of kind of these um, kind of uh, contexts where you know people just generally kind of treat it as being the you know reality defining. Uh, yeah, as giving you a kind of you know, and skepticism being kind of deviation from a kind of default. I did have one one question. Um, it struck me uh, we were Will and I 
along with some of our other colleagues, we're just having a conversation about um, sort of the assumption that there's, uh, you know, the deficit model, that the assumption that people don't believe in these things uh, because they're not educated enough about these things. Um, and so what your research, most of the things that you're looking at, it's, that's actually not the case. The, the strongest predictor is something that has to do with ideology rather than just a lack of information. Yeah. Um, but, but for, uh, you said GMOs, it actually, you, the thing that you were finding was that there was a lack of information that seemed to be uh, the leading uh, sort of predictor of, of why people don't uh, understand GMOs or what, what so, I don't know if you had any thoughts about about that because you're saying that was one that was much higher than you thought in terms of people um, being kind of confused or contentious about it around the world. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's um, it's definitely the case that um, so if GMOs really are the exception to the rule almost in the at least uh, amongst the topics that we study with the uh, variables that we that we usually assess in our in our studies as as anti students. Um, and that's it, interesting. Could indeed be the case. That's an interesting observation that this might actually be one of the reasons for why, uh, on average, levels of skepticism are higher in that domain. Um, we, uh, my colleague Jonathan McFeeters, who is now at Durham University in, in the UK, and I a couple of years ago ran a, a couple of studies. Uh, this was led by John uh, on how you could make people less skeptical about GMOs where we provided people with uh, some sort of an online training program, basically teaching them about DNA, uh, genes, genetic modification, things like that, using YouTube videos, uh, uh, texts and things like that. And we found that providing people with that sort of module, this online module, training module, uh, helped to a couple of weeks later to really sort of uh, decrease their skepticism uh, about GMOs and also their willingness to, to buy genetically modified uh, foods. There's, there's, some, there's a lot of misconceptions about GMOs. Uh, people have these, for lack of a better word, like a stereotypical view about what, what, what genetic modification is. You know, they, they uh, associate that with lab coats, with uh, uh, very sort of artificial uh, practices by scientists where, for example, the genes of one organism are then sort of you know, inserted into the gene of another organism, like the tomato that smells like fish once you add a fish gene to the tomato, things like that. Without realizing that genetic modification basically is something that people have been doing across, you know, basically for thousands of years, you know, uh, basically, uh, you know, if you look, if you look at what we now consider an edible banana is basically genetically modified uh, um, uh, food, you know. Uh, anyway, so, so, so that, that could be a reason for why levels of skepticism are a little bit higher in that domain because there's a lot of misconceptions. Um, and it also uh, provides a, a very, I think, interesting way of, you know, thinking about interventions because you can easily tackle these misconceptions by providing people with uh, uh, more accurate information. So this would speak to this information deficit model that you mentioned, right? So it's just a lack of knowledge and people should just be fed more information and then all shall be well. And this works for genetically modified foods, but we have a hard time finding that for the other domains. I mentioned before for vaccination skepticism, you do see some effects of, of, of knowledge deficits playing some role, uh, but it's, 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 it's an additional role on top of uh, yeah more important effect of, for example, spirituality. Um, and this touches more generally, I think, on a quite a uh, yeah, strongly raging debate currently in the, in the psychology of science literature. 
uh, between sort of updated information deficit models. Uh, so for, uh, for example, a recent model is the cognitive sophistication model, which argues uh, that um, cognitive laziness, uh, uh, lack of analytical thinking skills are indeed very important antecedents of science skepticism. Uh, so that's sort of one side of the uh, or of that debate. And the other side of the debate, uh, there are people who take more of a motivational approach and say, well, it's not so much about whether people understand science is whether they want to understand science, right? So sort of this motivated reasoning uh, going on. And, and, and these are sort of these two uh, yeah, camps, I wouldn't say camps, but it's sort of these two approaches in literature that sometimes clash. Uh, but I think there's now quite, quite a lot of interesting sort of cross-fertilization between these different approaches where we try to sort of see where we can find common ground because probably both are true to some extent. Um, you know, and probably there's, 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 there's also some interactions between uh, the motivation to, to want to learn more about a science topic, as well as the ideological constraints that might prevent people from doing so. So this is a very interesting field, very much in flux. And, and this really is, this is all, you know, uh, publications from the last couple of years. And so it's really interesting to, to follow that. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's fascinating because I mean, so kind of disciplinary, my background is kind of very kind of um, close to those kind of critiques of the deficit model. So coming from kind of science and technology studies or kind of public engagement with science and technology, that kind, those sorts of approaches, which are very, you know, a kind of blanket condemnation, that's a bit harsh, but yeah, you know, yeah, a kind yeah. of a rejection of that kind of um, deficit model approach across the board that's saying that, that, uh, that kind of knowledge isn't really relevant almost at all. It's all about, you know, um, whether... You know, and knowledge can harden skepticism or harden rejection of science. In fact, you yeah. know, people who know more can actually, you know, teaching them can actually lead them to even further harden their position against a particular science or technology piece of science yes. or technology. Yeah. But I think it's really interesting what you're saying there. That actually, you know, that complexifying that further and thinking about actually, it might be the case in certain in, with certain issues, but there are other kind of motivating things going on there which are kind of play, maybe playing a role. And actually, another with other topics, other pieces of science, you know, other pieces of technology, or as it be as it may, that actually knowledge might might in some cases lead to you know greater levels of acceptance or less skepticism so, but it is a much you know that there's, there's a that that you know just just assuming that knowledge will play no role or or you know or, or will or isn't really relevant to to kind of people's attitudes here is, is a bit of a you know you're throwing out the baby throwing the baby out of the bathwater as well you know you're going too far with using that yeah i think some some kind of yeah particularly um you know, kind of strident criticisms of the deficit model do do that to an extent, or at least can be read as doing that. So I think that's really interesting. I agree. Yeah. I, I'm just gonna. I mean, just thinking about this work as well. Obviously, we, we this work and, and some of these publications and, and some of your recent work has obviously been going on in the context of the kind of COVID pan, the COVID nineteen pandemic, and we've we've talked a lot, you know, throughout the kind of production of this podcast to people about kind of COVID and its impact. So I'm just wondering, were there was there any kind of um, kind of were you looking when you were doing this or, or did you find um, the impacts of the pandemic on, on kind of science skepticism? Were, were there, did it affect the rates or strength of, of, of people's, you know, obviously vaccination would be the obvious kind of um, a thing you might think there would be an effect here, but, you know, did you find anything in, in uh, the interaction of COVID-19 and the pandemic on, on these, these? Yeah. So, and we did some studies during the pandemic where we tried to compare general vaccination attitudes using the more classic measures of, of, of 
you know, uh, attitudes towards the MMR vaccine, uh, which is most commonly debated. Uh, vaccine probably due to also to the, the, you know, sort of the 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 vaccines causing autism types of uh, types of uh, misbeliefs that, that people have. Some people have, um, and we so we we wanted to systematically compare. Uh, these types of attitudes with attitudes specifically towards the COVID-19 uh, COVID uh, vaccine campaign to see if there's any, if there's any differences. And yeah, what we saw in the data is, is quite a lot of overlap. Uh, so again, some role of, of, of science literacy, uh, definitely a role of spiritual, spirituality, again, self-identifying self as a spiritual believer had a negative uh, effect on these attitudes. Uh, but what we also saw was that for COVID uh, vaccination attitudes, they seemed a little bit more, I mean, and this is just based on a couple of studies. So, so you have to sort of take some precaution in interpreting this, but these data at least showed that it seems a little bit more politicized, where there's, there's a slightly larger role also for political beliefs, sort of more fringy, you know, if you will, political beliefs, both on the left and right, I would say, you know, but sort of the more populist uh, political beliefs that, that played an additional role. So, and that makes sense, right? If you think about how the COVID pandemic was clearly politicized in a, in a, in a way. Um, uh, we're seeing that in our data as well. So that that made it, uh, uh, that led to a slightly different picture for, for that uh, these types of attitudes, but also quite a lot of overlap, as I mentioned with uh, classic vaccination attitudes. Um, more generally, um, I've been following some of the work of these large-scale survey companies in the Netherlands that track public trust in science uh, over the years. And they, uh, I think it's really interesting to see what happens with public trust in science when, 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 when such a pandemic happens. And what we saw, what, what that survey company uh, reported on was interestingly that in the early stage of the pandemic, trust in science increased, uh, which was interesting. Uh, and it makes sense, right? Because, you know, in the early stage of the pandemic, there's a lot of uncertainty, uh, unpredictability, and then people are sort of motivated to yeah, place a trust in experts to some extent to take away some of that uncertainty. Um, so you're really sort of looking to the uh, to the government, to the scientists, to 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 make sense of of all the stuff that's going on. But then after a while, uh, when the dust settled down and, and, and people started to form their own opinions a little bit about COVID and things like that, then you're seeing that this trust in science uh, sort of went back to baseline. It didn't didn't uh, further decrease; it just sort of went back to pre-pandemic levels, which I thought was interesting and also in a way encouraging. That is really interesting. And I was expecting you to tell a little bit of a different story about how it had decreased, but it's interesting that it get, got a little bump and then just went back to baseline. That is kind yeah. of encouraging that, that, that actually, uh, that seems about right, actually. Yeah. Yeah. There's maybe uh, one, one, sorry, sorry, but one, one thing maybe to add here is that I think it really also depends on the fidelity of the measures that you use. So what, what, you know, one thing I noticed, and, and you've probably seen it in the UK as well, is that people tend to mix up policy with science, right? So in the, during the pandemic, so you, so you get this sense of whatever policy, whichever policy uh, is, is, is based on data will have an impact on how people evaluate the data and the scientists, right? Um, and, and, and when that gets confused and mixed up, then you might get effects on trust and science, which are actually partially caused by this, uh, you know, dissatisfaction with uh, policymaking. And that's important to, I think, to tease these two uh, things apart. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's early on in the pandemic in the UK, obviously, this is, I mean, 
people have, have, have looked at this, you know, and, and written about this much, you know, well, I couldn't, and I will hear, but, you know, that, that, you know, complete entanglement of science and policy, you know, with, 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 was, you know, constantly kind of on display with, you know, um, particularly thinking about how this stuff was, was given, you know, how it was presented to the public. So there was this kind of daily news briefing that was given by the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but he had alongside him his chief scientific advisor, Chris Whitty and Patrick Balance, and they were very prominent in this communication. And throughout the kind of early response was always that, you know, the UK is following the science, or the UK policy is following the science, but, you know, that in a way this has the, you know, the political um, sort of advantage for Boris Johnson to say, well, this is the scientist making you do this, right? So it's kind of deflection of our policies are actually just science, you know, and, and, and it's dissolving that boundary, you know, if there is, you know, but rather than, you know, and, and saying very clearly that this, you know, this thing that we are doing is dictated to us by this thing that is science. And, you know, right. and, exactly. and as you say, like the impact, the, the kind of potentially um, damaging impact of that when when people come to, you know, think, oh, it wasn't Boris Johnson's fault, he was just doing what the scientist was telling him. Right? Yeah, so, you know, exactly. it deflects quite, you know, it's quite a canny kind of operation yeah. operator but you know um, but as you said the kind of potential implications of that for how people then treat science more generally are quite you know potentially worrying and that's and that's something i'm interested in but yeah i mean as you say there like it's i would be interested to see that that what you know that curve as you were describing whether you know, in the uk whether a similar pattern emerged of, of i think definitely there was a bump and particularly coming off the back of the kind of previous rhetoric that had existed around the kind of UK government, which was very kind of anti-expert, anti-scientific, you know, kind of Brexit referendum and thing, you know, we've had enough of experts, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Complete yeah. switch around in terms of how we're now understanding their value and, and where they are in starting what they do for us. But but that's a whole other conversation, so I will, um, um, but it's very interesting, right? No, it's, it's really interesting. Totally, yeah, definitely. Well, some of the work that I do is on uh, intergroup uh, relations, sort of um, intergroup bias and those types of things. And I did notice that you recently added a special issue in group processes and intergroup relations, um, looking at uh, a group processes approach to anti-science beliefs and endorsements of alternative facts, uh, which kind of goes along with the earlier discussion we were having, talking about people's motivations and talking about information, but we haven't quite really touched on misinformation. Um, but this approach is a little bit different than you know, looking at the ideological antecedents, because it's looking at both uh, misinformation and alternative facts and more of a group processes approach. Um, so I was curious um, if you had any uh, revelations or major takeaways from sort of the research that you uh, gathered for that project. Yeah, so I think, I mean, so when we started thinking about doing a special issue, we noticed that there was a sort of a, a, a lacuna, if you will, a gap in, in, in the, in the uh, social psychological research, I think, on, on, on the group processes side of things uh, when, when thinking about science skepticism, right? So, so there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of research on, you know, information deficits on the one hand, motivational processes on the other hand, uh, but it very much seemed to take an intra-individual approach. And of course, the more inter-individual approach uh, is I think absolutely essential in order to properly understand uh, science skepticism and also I guess where some many of these ideological ideological antecedents stem from in the first place. I mean ideolo ideology isn't something that people just develop you know uh, sitting by themselves in, 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 in some some room right so it's, so it's a it's a social process so so for that reason alone I think it's interesting to to, to look at that. Um, I think that 
one, one, one thing that I found really interesting is that, and it's also work that Sander van der Linde, one of my co-editors is doing a lot of work on, is the notion of uh, perceived consensus. Uh, so the extent to which uh, people view scientists as a group, which is a bit of a different approach, but still interesting, I think, as, as uh, having reached some kind of consensus about a topic and how that might impact on people's uh, attitudes towards science. Uh, but also, of course, more generally, social norms associated with these attitudes towards science. I mean, if you're, uh, if you're hesitant about vaccines and you find yourself surrounded by people that are pretty much pro-vaxxers, you'll have a hard time uh, sort of uh, maintaining that, that critical attitude towards uh, vaccination, right? And the other way around as well, when you're surrounded by, for example, friends or family members who are more critical about vaccines, same thing. So I think that's a very important, uh, uh, you know, approach that should be taken. And I, I still think that there's a little bit of a lack of that in, in literature. So I, I was also hoping that this special issue would encourage, and it probably will, I, I hope it will, encourage more people to, to take that approach. Um, maybe another thing that uh, would be interesting here to mention is that, you know, if you think about more you know, a bit of a different line of research, but more research in the in the in the cultural evolution area. So work by people like Joseph Henrik and Arno and Zion and, and all these people that look more at religious beliefs from a cultural evolution perspective. They would also make a point that if you think about just gathering information, you know, seeking uh, seeking information about the world, how the world works, then actual factual information comes secondary to the source that uh, the information stems from, right? So source credibility effects, uh, uh, that, that, that type of thing. And uh, so recently there was a paper by a PhD student in, uh, in our department who looked at one of these source credibility effects for science, if, uh, not for science information, but looking at whether particular information came from science or from a spiritual uh, guru as a, as a source of that knowledge and, and found that when information comes from a scientist, uh, it's deemed more credible, even if the information is, 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 uh, is bogus. So that just, I think, again, points to the importance of things like social norms, uh, source credibility effects, that kind of thing. These, these social effects on, on uh, whether people accept knowledge and information or not. Uh, and that's, that's, that's fascinating. And that, that, that really interesting point you made at the start about the piece of research, just again, to to clarify about was it this, this study by your colleague who was looking at how people perceived scientific consensus or scientists as a group who form consensus i mean I'd, i'm very interested in that because something I've, I've made previously is that that's a vital thing that, that kind of people when engaging with science need to understand about science is one of the kind of key things about it is that it is a consensus forming yeah. process a socially a social consensus performing process and if people understand that to be a kind of defining characteristic of science that's helpful for them in terms of thinking about um what you know how to treat science scientific knowledge when they engage with it as, as kind of citizens right but, i mean did what what can i mean just for my own benefit i hope other people find it interesting as well but could you tell me a little bit what came out of that did did that have a bit did that kind of have a beneficial benefit that's uh, a beneficial benefit a beneficial effect on people's perception of kind of science or was it or, or yeah so so, so of the Linda did quite some work on on, on that and related effects and i, I think Quite convincingly shows that 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 the, this perceived consensus does have beneficial effects. Um, and then there was this recent paper by 
Dutch colleague Art van Stekelenburg. It's a bit of a tricky Dutch name. Um, uh, so he did. He, he had a recent paper in Psych Science uh, on perceived consensus effects on uh, climate change, uh, climate science skepticism, basically, uh, as well as uh, GMO-related skepticism. And what he found interestingly was that it only worked for the GMO skepticism, which I interpreted uh, as sort of evidence for, oh, well, you know, remember that GMOs, GMO skepticism is, is, is shaped to a larger extent by information deficits and lack of knowledge than the other domain. So I sort of interpreted that along these lines. So, ah, so perceived consensus and information deficits might be sort of two parts of the same coin in, in a way. And he sort of makes sense and that, that it didn't find this effect for climate science. However, we engaged in a big, bit of a back and forth, which is really cool. Some, some letters back and forth in psych science, uh, uh, sort of having a bit of a discussion, which was extremely fruitful and, 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 and nice to do, uh, where they pointed to uh, uh, recent meta-analyses uh, meta-analysis on these uh, perceived consensus effects. And actually, there seems to be overall a small yet robust effect of perceived consensus across more than just the GMO domain, uh, which is interesting. Uh, but it's important, I think, to tease apart here that there's two ways of operationalizing perceived consensus, at least what, what, what they did. So one is just literally like perceiving consensus. So do people uh, sort of accept that the science is unequivocally, you know, uh, uh, in consensus about something being close to certain, like climate change, you know, the golden standard of 90, what is it, 5%, uh, you know, uh, scientists agree that uh, human-made climate change is, is real, you know, uh, but there's also uh, understanding of scientific consensus. So that people even know what scientific consensus would mean. And this is, this is something else, right? And, and it's really important to tease these two things apart. And I could imagine that understanding scientific consensus, so what does it actually mean, you know? Um, that that might be more related to information deficit effects, whereas the actual just perceiving scientific consensus, perceiving this group of people reaching this consensus might perhaps be a bit more broadly uh, applicable to domains that are more ideologically uh, driven, you know, in terms of uh, uh, forming skeptical attitudes. Um, and I would also think that, you know, that latter type of scientific consensus would only work when people are at least open to some extent to scientists uh, providing them with information, right? So if you would have people who would perceive science as some so like corrupted or elitist enterprise endeavor, then of course, perceived consensus might even backfire, right? Because you know what's the source? What is the source that the consensus is coming from? Uh, you know, if you don't trust that to begin with, then the consensus is not going uh, to help. I think. Yeah, for sure. And that's when you kind of start leaking into kind of conspiratorial views around what you mm -hmm. know, those values yeah. are within science, yeah. and what the you know a kind of establishment you know conspiracy to, to feed certain information. Yeah, no, I mean that's, that's that's fascinating. I'll definitely um for my own benefit, if for no one else's, I will I will I'm sure it is for many other people, but I will be looking into that for sure because I think that's really fascinating. Um, and yeah, I'll definitely kind of chase up that back and forth. But um no, it's fascinating. I mean, and we've we've talked across a lot of your different interests here, and I think you know we've been you know 
deliberately picking off things that are aligned to a to extent with our own, I think Richard and I, but you know, that's the privilege of podcast host. Um, but I mean, it's also fascinating, hopefully for the listeners. But I mean, so you've got another project as well that I kind of want to talk to you briefly about now um, in your uh, the psycho, um, psychology of science lab that you work in. Um, and it looks at what you call the psychological function of science. Mm. And here you argue that science is uh, a lens through which people view the world, which can help to meet important psychological needs. Um, so I guess the, there, what needs then does, does science allow people to meet in this sense? Um, and how then, thinking back to some of the kind of things we talked about around scepticism, does that or how does that relate to engagement or people's engagement with science, such as their levels of trust or scepticism? So just talk a bit about that. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this this interest in in psychological needs uh, uh, has been basically occupying me since since I did my PhD work, basically, which which was also on on the extent to which religious uh, beliefs, but also scientific beliefs or worldviews, and things like belief in progress might 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 you know help fulfilling these needs. And the the needs that I looked at during my PhD work were the need for Basically, the need for control or uh, structure uh, versus things like randomness and uncontrollability, as well as the need for what you could call existential meaning. So, so really, sort of the uh, you know uh, existential views on sort of the yeah ontological significance of life. You know, so sort of why are we here? What's the what's the point? You know, these types of deep existential beliefs, and. You know, to start, so, and these are two, I think, fundamental psychological needs, right? The need for control and order slash structure and the need for existential meaning. But it's also the need for, the need to belong, you know, to, to belong to, to, to a certain group, for example. And things like need for, yeah, I suppose something you could call self-esteem or self-worth, right? So that, 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 that could be, some people would say that these are the four fundamental psychological needs, but you could debate about that. Um, but we've been looking at, at this control and meaning, uh, these control and meaning needs uh, mostly. And so I guess the main thing to get out of that research, and there's a lot of other research done by colleagues on this need for control aspect, is that science can, like religious belief, you know, provide in that need. For example, if you would lack personally, a sense of control, like during a COVID pandemic, where you feel, you know, I just feel this is just an uncontrollable, unpredictable situation, uh, where and I, I kind of really do anything, then people would start looking for control elsewhere. This is what what, what has been uh, described very well by Aaron case compensatory control model, right? So you would sort of uh, find external control elsewhere. And one, one source of control could be, of course, uh, a religious agent, um, a supernatural agent, um, a controlling God that could basically control the world on your behalf, if you will. You could pray to God and then God would, you know, control the world on your behalf. And uh, so there's, there's work on that, uh, but it only works as long as a religious agent is um, believed to be an intervening agent. So, so you know, it's, it depends a little bit on the qualities that you ascribe to that to that agent. And you could say a similar thing about science to some extent. So we, for example, try to look at um, evolutionary theory and we try to, you know, use the fact that in lay people's views, theory of evolution really is a lot of randomness, right? So, so if you ask members of the general public, you know, Darwinian evolution, people would, would 
think, well, there's a lot of just, just stuff happens, you know, it's random, there's, there's, no, no, there's no structure to it, there's no predictability to it. And so it's, it's basically just a set of random events, right? So that's sort of the layman's view to some layperson's view to some extent on evolution. And we try to capitalize on that by, by using that frame and then also counter that with a more orderly perspective on evolution. So people like uh, Paul Conway Morris would, would, would have that more sort of orderly view on evolution. And we just use that and provided people with snippets of information that described evolution in these, in these, in these ways. And we found that if you uh, frame evolution as an orderly process, then it does meet, sort of, sort of help people sort of meeting that need for control. So people are more motivated to believe in evolution if they lack control, as long as evolution is framed as an orderly process. They don't if evolution is framed as a more random haphazard process. You know, so, so, so science, uh, and, and we also look at other things like different types of theories in science, like more like stage theories, you know, the, the five stages of grief, the eight stages of moral development, that kind of thing, really neatly ordered packages of information about how uh, uh, humans function, our society functions, our, our life functions, basically, and, and see the same thing, you know, orderly stage theories really sort of provide people with a sense of ah, control, order, structure, predictability, whereas theories that don't so much offer that type of order and predictability uh, don't fulfill that need, you know, so, so it depends on how you frame science. So that's for order and control. If you think about existential meaning, things become a little bit more difficult. Um, we and I was a bit surprised by this because, you know, being a scientist myself, I, I could sort of see how science can be a source of of great meaning, you know, and, and a purpose in life. Not only just sort of thinking about science as this sort of awesome process where you accumulate knowledge, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but also sort of scientific ways of looking at sort of viewing the universe and life through scientific through a scientific lens, I think can be awesome and, and awe-inspiring and, and all that stuff, but it's not really what we're seeing in our data. So uh, we have a recent project uh, for which we joined forces with uh, Steve Heine at the University of British Columbia and, and, and Donegan Falk, who is also the PhD student of Steve's. And we sort of keep finding um, in, 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 in quite simple correlational research that belief in science quite consistently correlates negatively with perceptions of meaning in life. Uh, no matter how you measure it, uh, whereas religious belief consistently, not surprisingly, positively with perceptions of meaning in life. So people seem to have an issue of using science as a source of mm, existential meaning, which, uh, and, and this also holds for people working in STEM fields, we found in, in a recent study that we ran, uh, which, which, yeah, sort of, it baffled me a bit, to be honest, so, but it's quite consistent. Sorry, Richard, I'm, I'm jumping in again here. No, but, <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, the, the, that, that point about framing is just, I mean, it's, it's music to my ears because a lot of my, my research state is about exactly that, about the way, particularly in kind of the way that people might encounter science through kind of popular representation, so in media. And there, yeah. are, there are certainly, according to me, framings which present science as able to address those needs of world ordering, <clears throat> excuse me, and kind of meaning making. And I find it, yeah. and, and I'm just been engaged recently in trying to uh, kind of 
more sociologically, so do it not kind of the way that, kind of methodologically the way they kind of assume you kind of go about doing it in terms of the testing, but you know, in terms of more kind of qualitative way, um, assess how particularly non-religious people engage with science and those kinds of framing of science to see if they are, you know, do that kind of thing. Do they provide a sense of kind of existential justification? Do they provide a sense of kind of world order? So I think it, I find it fascinating that they kind of, um, or, or encouraging to me anyway, that those, those, um, those, those findings that you have in terms of the, 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 need, the needs being met if, if science is fra framed in a particular way, it seems to address that kind right. of thing. I think it's really interesting. Um, but again, this, this, this uh, uh, Richard, have you got anything else? Because this isn't just about me and satisfying my, my needs for the interesting <laughs> conversation. I was going to make a similar point, but it's probably better coming from you than me since you're actually in that line of work. Uh, so, But I also was, I was very interested in uh, kind of what, I think I understood what you're saying to be that people who rely more on science than religion uh, have greater difficult, I don't know if difficulties are, they, they see a little bit less meaning in life than people who rely on religion. Is that, and then, yeah. but then, but that, that people do still rely on science for meaning, but it, I guess perhaps it doesn't seem to, to give them the same level of meaning as people who re right. rely on religion. Is that correct? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I found that to be really interesting. It's because it's the it seems to be the case that people can use science, right, as as sort of a worldview, as sort of something to give them meaning. But it's also interesting that it just it doesn't seem to provide that same level of sort of existential uh, fulfillment or meaning that religion does for religious people. That's I find that that when you said that, I thought that was really interesting. Something to for me to think about for a while. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it also depends on. You know whether you couple scientific sort of scientific advances with, for example, uh, more secularized sort of humanist beliefs, if you will, humanistic beliefs about progress, right? So, so, so if you think about science as as, as uh, and this just I'm just you're referring to some previous work we did on, on on beliefs in progress and different types of progress. So if you think about purely scientific or technological advance just knowledge accumulation, that doesn't really do much for people in terms of providing, you know, on an aggregate level, uh, providing existential meaning. But if you couple that with social moral progress, you know, so, so, so suppose that through technological advance or scientific advance, you could actually facilitate uh, certain social or moral advances, right? So, so improving the quality of life of people or, uh, you know, making sure that there's more, equity across the world or all, all, all kinds of things, right? Sort of sort of byproducts of the scientific advances that, that science can can provide. Then you then then you might get to a different story, right? So so if if you can sort of see how science can provide that kind of social, moral, human progress, then you could, and that's what we're seeing in that research as well, then you could actually see how that might fulfill uh, for non-religious people uh, in, in, in some way the, the, that existential function because it gives people this, this, this sort of belief that the cause of you know human progress or, or human history in a sense is, is a cause of is a, is, a, is a not so much not really like a cyclical thing or, or something that sort of de sort of is, 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 is not progressing but declining but it's actually sort of going up so it's sort of the Stephen Pinker type of thinking you know the better angels of our nature type of uh, arguments that, that that there is actually social moral progress across history and you know if you believe that science plays a 
you know, crucial role in that, then, then you could sort of see how that might actually uh, help to give people a sense of, 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 of meaning in that, in that sense. I mean, I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, I think, I, I, I suppose I kind of, I suppose cards on the table, I'd, I'd counter sort of that, um, or, or, or would, or would my, my, after a bit of a reflection, my reaction to the idea that science is less good or provides a, a kind of less meaningful sense of meaning that isn't quite, but you know, I'm at, for me and kind of perspective I'm coming from, I'm kind of encouraged by that, I think, because I think if uh, attaching that sense of meaning to science, and it goes back to the point actually about skepticism, it's something I want to ask you right at the start, because you mentioned first in this idea of, of a healthy skepticism, right? And a, health, a healthy skepticism being something that scientists need in doing their kind of day-to-day -day work. And also I think it ties to that point that you said that actually people doing, working in STEM find it, you know, find science provides them less meaning. And that, you know, this all tying together in a sense in that, because as a citizen in a democracy who kind of lives in a techno-scientific society who is, a, who is you know, uh, surrounded by, or need, needs to make decisions about, you know, science, or, or needs to feed into decisions around science policy, for instance, having science as a kind of sense of kind of existential justification might make that more difficult in that it might be more difficult to kind of hold science to account or to develop that healthy skepticism. Because if it is the basis of your identity or the basis of your kind of, you know, the thing that makes it meaningful, it will be, I think, again, this, this probably almost certainly is empirical research, but I feel that would make it more difficult for you to hold it to account in a, in a, in the way that might be required of you as a democratic system. So actually yeah. not finding meaning in it in quite the same way, I think potentially could be better for democracy in, in sort of scientific democracy. But that's a big, Kind of programmatic claim that I have no evidence for, but that's kind of you know that, that's the, the my my yeah. feeling there. I I think that's 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 an incredibly interesting observation. I think that's that's I I, I didn't think about that before, and I I think this is uh, yeah this very interesting idea, and I think it makes sense, right? So if you if you take Merton's you know sociologists of science Merton's norms of what science should be, right? The sort of the uh, the 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 kudos norms the communality, disinterestedness, universality, that kind of thing, uh, organized skepticism. So, so these, these types of Mertonian norms don't really strike me as particularly psychologically fulfilling to the practitioner of science, right? Just sort of, sort of asks of you to be this sort of almost distant, not engaged, sort of not sort of effective, sort of affectively involved uh, uh, agent, you know, in this whole process. Uh, which might benefit the way that science operates indeed in society, but it does take away from uh, what what people can take out of science indeed from from a psychological perspective. But that's 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 just I think that's a really uh, really nice idea, and uh, maybe one of the reasons for why science is so successful in a sense as well because it's it it's it makes it possible to remain open to self correction, right? Because you're not extensively involved in at least hopefully you know in your own theories or uh, you know your colleagues uh, theories or whatever so that's that's a really interesting observation i think and of course and of course in practice scientists are like you know that's the thing that's the tension i suppose isn't it that you know and that's that where you have the is it for who made the observation about you know science progressing progressing one funeral at a time because people become so attached yeah. to their ideas and stuff like that. and of course you know but, but i suppose the idea that aspirationally at least science has that set of norms that people you know think they should be kind of aspiring to even if they can't at all times and as you say that how that allows science potentially to to change and to progress is, is yeah it, yeah i think that's yeah it's really yeah interesting but I mean, we've come to the end of our kind of 
list of, of defined questions. Richard, have you got any kind of final reflection or comments? I mean, I've, I've had a fantastic time. I feel I've monopolized the conversation far too much, so I, I'll be quiet. No, no, it's been it's been great. And, uh, yeah, I have a lot to think about it, uh, from the things that you said. I mean, there's so many things uh, about this that I find fascinating and, and I'll have to reflect on. Uh, some of it has to do with my research and some of it just has to do with uh, just, you know, the, the way that I think about the world <laughs> more generally um, outside of research. Um, but yeah, I, I've had a fantastic time. I, well, I didn't think you were monopolizing on well, I mean, I too have, have had a similar set of reflections and yeah, a lot of really interesting reflections and it's very good to speak, as this podcast is kind of aimed to do, is to speak across disciplines and to speak slightly outside of your our, our comfort zones and I, and I feel like I've had a really, a really, again, a fascinating conversation with a social psychologist who I don't get to speak to apart from maybe Richard and some other colleagues, but it's really, really interesting to know the kind of different approaches and different um, uh, yeah, things that are happening, but also that align in interesting ways. I hope that the listeners do. So thank you so much, Bastian. Thanks for the interesting and uh, thought-provoking questions. And it was, was really nice to chat uh, chat with you and also sort of chat with people outside of my own direct field, which is which is, which is is great and sort of opens, you know, opens the mind in a sense. Thank you so much. Thanks very much to today's guest, Dr. Bastian Rutgens, and to my co-host, Dr. Richard Grove. For more information on episodes, visit www.scienceandbeliefinsociety.org. I'm Dr. Will Mason-Wilkes, and this is the Science and Belief in Society podcast. Thanks for listening.